everyone and welcome to episode 555 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have had some house guests, like the kind that stay the night or, you know, a couple of nights. So I actually managed to tear myself away from my computer and spend some time with them. They're from interstate, from Victoria, and it was great. We went to the beach, we checked out some gardens, we went for some walks. You know, they're, they were kind of very active kind of people who like doing things all the time. So I was on the go and it was kind of a nice break, but it's also nice to take a break from, you know, like taking a break and talk to you and hang out with you guys. I want to give Etch from Australia a big shout out. Etch took the time to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. And their comment was, I love this podcast so much. And, you know, short and sweet with a bunch of emojis. I love it. Thank you so much, Etch. I really appreciate it because it really helps us in the rankings. If you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, that'd be awesome because it helps other people discover us. Anyhow, let's move on to our writing tip this week. Now, I was talking to a writer recently about using technology and all the different apps that are out there because I'm kind of interested in that sort of thing. Now, this writer was is no Luddite, right? She fully embraces technology, uses it all the time in her work and her day-to-day life, but, it went, but when it comes to writing, she uses a plain old whiteboard. Yes, There are apps and programs and online this, that, and the other thing, but at the end of the day, she just loves her whiteboard. It's right there above her desk. She can stick notes on it or scribble on it or update her word count and put up pictures and ask questions, you know, rhetorical ones or questions that she needs to resolve. Um, No, it's true. She can't carry it around with her on her mobile or laptop, but it's right where she needs it to be, right above her desk. So I know it can be easy to get carried away with the latest app or a bit of tech as though that's going to solve your writing problems. But sometimes maybe all you need is a whiteboard or if you really can't fit a whiteboard in because, yeah, I know they can be quite clunky, you can buy whiteboard sheets. I've done that before. Um, you know, you can just get them from Officeworks. Uh, you can buy them online. And they're sheets that just stick to walls so that you can use whiteboard markers on them, just like a whiteboard. But when you're done, you can put them away or chuck them out or probably I'd take photos of them so that you have a record of them but then they don't have to take up a whole heap of space because I do know that when I did buy a whiteboard in the past it just did I just didn't have enough room for it so you know Uh, or you can go analog one thing that I like doing is writing on um, not the little post-it notes I don't find that very useful when I'm planning out um, my writing, but the big post-it notes, like A5 size, or you can write on index cards and stick them on a corkboard or something. I know lots of authors, and I mean lots, who have planned out entire books on index cards. So yeah, go analog if you want. Anyhow, give it a try and see how you go. Now I want to move on to our competition this week. 
Oh, this is a really awesome book. I have a copy for myself and I'm going through it at the moment. I have three copies of Writing for Busy Readers by Todd Rogers and Jessica Lasky-Fink to give away. Want to write more effectively? We've got you covered. This week we have three copies of Writing for Busy Readers by Todd Rogers and Jessica Lasky-Fink. Here's the blurb. We were all taught the fundamentals of writing well in school, but how do we write effectively in today's hyper-interactive world? When the elements of style and on writing well were published in 1959 and 1976, the internet hadn't been invented. Since then, there has been a radical transformation in how we communicate. The average adult receives over 100 emails and tens of text messages each day. With all this correspondence, gaining a busy reader's attention is now a competition. Todd Rogers and Jessica Lasky-Fink, both behavioural scientists, offer practical writing advice you can use today. They begin by outlining cognitive facts about how busy people read, then detail six research-backed principles for effective writing. These include use fewer words, lower the reading level, use formatting judiciously, make the purpose clear for skimmers, emphasise value for readers, make responding as easy as possible. Including many examples, a checklist and other tools for the most effective writing, this handbook will make you a more effective communicator. Rogers and Lasky-Fink bring conventional ideas about text-based communication into the 21st century's radically transformed attention marketplace. All right, so I have three copies of this to give away. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on the 4th of September. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. And of course, if you're at that URL sometime in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition there for you to enter. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are because I'm ready to share it with you. It is perquisite, perquisite, P-E-R-Q-U-I-S-I-T-E, perquisite, not to be confused with prerequisite, right? So a perquisite is anything you get over and above your fixed income, salary or wages. And it is where we get the word perk from, P-E-R-K, as in, you know, perks of the job. That's right, perk is short for perquisite. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Today I'm talking to Veronica Lando, who is an Australian crime author whose latest novel is The Drowning Girls. She also won the Banjo Prize for The Whispering, which was then published by HarperCollins. And she's also a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. Thank you so much for joining us today, Veronica. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me back on, Valerie. It's really uh, exciting to come back and talk all things book too. I am really looking forward to this catch up because when we first spoke to you, to you, it was at the time of your debut novel, uh, The Whispering. And so much ha- can happen in the first you know, year or so of an author's career after they burst onto the scene, because this is now your second novel, The Drowning Girls. And what I would love to unpack, obviously, we'd l- I'd love to talk about your fabulous new novel, but what I'd love to unpack is what it's been like over the past year or so, um, and whether it's met your expectations and the things you've learned from it or, and so on. So first of all, let's talk about The Drowning Girls. Can you tell us what it's about? Well, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited about this book. Um, it's one that I wrote last year while I had uh, my third baby at home with me, she was teeny tiny. Um, and so it's really exciting now to see it out into the world finally. Uh, so The Drowning Girls follows our main character, Nate, who is a disgraced school teacher. And he's heading up north to the tiny fishing town of Port Flinders uh, to fill in and do the supply teaching role up there for a term. And uh, he arrives right up the cusp of their annual Drowning Girl Festival, which is this festival that uh, sort of follows the idea that you have to drown a woman or sacrifice a woman to the sea in order to ensure a prosperous fishing halt for the year ahead. And failing to do so will mean that seas will dry up and the entire fishing industry that supports the town uh, will perish. And um, so it's a bit of a morbid festival that's going on when Nate arrives. And of course, it's not too long after he does get in Port Flinders that the body of a real woman uh, washes up on the shores of the Gulf. Uh, and Nate's not surprised that things are looking a little bit uh, suspicious right from the, the get-go, but he finds that everyone is trying to sort of sweep her death under the rug and say that it's a bit of an accident. Uh, because, of course, in, uh, during the festival when they do drown a woman, it's not a real woman. It's just a, a sort of like a dummy or a statue. Um, and, and so Nate starts to, to do a little bit of digging. And, and as he starts looking into things, he starts to unpack a bit of an ugly uh, past to Port Flinders where there's been quite a number of deaths. Uh, they've all been women and they've all drowned. Uh, always in suspicious circumstances and always around the time of the festival. So Nate really finds himself wondering if, uh, perhaps there are some people in Port Flinders that uh, might actually believe that a sacrifice is truly necessary. How in the world did this idea come to you? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. I really, um, I liked the idea. I really wanted to write something where there was an entire town or entire group of people that were in on something together or it seemed like maybe they could be in on it together. And that's really the idea of the town of Port Flinders and them having this this sort of, um, have, I wanted the reader to, to wonder whether or not everyone in the town really believed this legend to be, to be true. And so, uh, because of my first book, I had included a bit of like a, a folklore legend in that one as well. Um, I really enjoyed writing about that and I wanted to carry something similar over into my second book. And so I came up with this festival, uh, this drowning girl legend, which really I got the idea from just doing a bit of Googling about, um, local sort of Australian folklore and then I was also looking sort of abroad as well as to um, superstitions and folklore and I uh, stumbled across the the Bunyip here in Australia and then also the Banshee um, further afield and sort of two of those together made me come up with this drowning girl idea and then the idea of the setting things like the the golf with the mudflats and the mangroves and there's a jetty with this statue of a woman on it uh, that's that's present throughout the entire story. That all came from my hometown where I'm living now, which is up in uh, North Queensland in Townsville. 
And that's very much the landscape here. We have this sort of very tidal ocean and lots of mangroves and we even have a cute little jetty and there's not a statue of a woman on the jetty, but there is one just off the side. And I was actually sitting one night uh, watching this statue. She lights up at nighttime and I was watching her light up and just the idea of this, this statue on the jetty, um, it just all sort of seemed very visually appealing and I knew I wanted also somewhere where there was going to be a, a large population of people. So best, after I did some sort of um, brainstorming, a festival was, was where I fell and it just it, it sort of came to from there. Wow. Now, you burst onto the scene because you won the Banjo Prize, which is absolutely fantastic. And then The Whispering gets published and it has just been announced on the shortlist of the uh, Queensland Literary Awards on one of the shortlists. So congratulations for that. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. And it's made such a splash, you know, um, as you have as an author. But when you write your first novel, you're not often thinking of your second novel at that point. You're, you're so immersed generally in the first novel and then it gets out there. When did you start thinking, oh, I need to I, 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 I need to write a second novel because you were on a two book contract, I think. Is that right or no? No, you, w- w- no, no. It was oh, just a, a one book, uh, the prize for the manager is a one book deal. Yep. Um, and then off the back of that, I went on to sign a, a two book deal, but that was some months later. Yes. Um, okay. So when did you start thinking yeah. I should write a second book? Oh, well, I knew that it was, there was always going to be an expectation that when you get published, one of the first thing or when a publisher agrees to take you on or an agent, one of the first things they ask you is, so what else have you got? So I did know in the back of my head that it was going to be something that cropped up pretty early on. Um, but I hadn't expected to win the banjo because my, uh, the whispering at the time was sort of in a fairly rough state when I submitted it. So um, I didn't have any concepts for, for book two whatsoever. And uh, it wasn't really until I found out that I was shortlisted and I was taken on by my agent and he asked me, uh, so, you know, what are your, your goals as an author, sort of like longer term goals? And um, one of them for me is, is career longevity, being able to have a sustainable career that I can, I can do for hopefully many years to come. And so with that, obviously, there comes the, uh, that's when sort of the talk of book two starts, um, starts coming along. So it was not long after I signed uh, that I found out I was, I was shortlisted and then when I found out I was one that, that I won the banjo that I was going to uh, have to very quite quickly come up with a second book idea. Uh, and my agent and I had discussed where would be the best time to pitch a, a second book and um, he recommended pitching before The Whispering was published. And so I knew then that I, I was on a fairly short um, public, publication schedule and so I knew that I was going to have to come up with a pretty solid idea to um, in a few months whilst editing the whispering. Now let's talk about your agent because I think a lot of people will be interested in how you got your agent and when in the process that occurred. So you're with Curtis Brown, is that right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So when did in the process did you secure your agent? Uh, so I, they reached out to me when I was shortlisted for the mm. banjo and I think that's um, specifically because my uh, agent, Benjamin Paz, has an interest in crime and thriller and that's sort of his niche area. And so he reached out uh, because he'd looked at, at the shortlist for the banjo and mine was uh, crime. Well, so it was obviously looking like it was up his alley. So he he contacted me and asked if he could um, read it, if that was all right. And um, yeah, sent it off and we went from there. So he liked it and, and signed me. Fantastic. So it's definitely worth it entering these prizes, it, you know, because you oh, make absolutely. contacts, right? 
Okay. So you started, you, you thought, okay, I need to pitch the idea of the Drowning Girls and all of that. What was the gestation period then, you know? Because like you've got a young family. You've got 18-month-old, three-year-old, six-year-old. Memory. <laughs> and, you know, you need to fit stuff in between parenting and all the things associated with that. So can you just talk us through a bit of a timeline um, as to how long it took and to, to, for it to get to a, a draft that you were happy with? Yeah, so it was probably a number of months. Uh, so by the time um, I had found out I'd won the banjo and we'd signed the contracts and gone through that process, that takes a bit of time, and uh, sort of had started the editing process for The Whispering, that was probably about November 2021, that the book was due to come out in July 2022, so maybe only seven or so months later. So I had this fairly short uh, editing uh, time. The book went to print in April, so I had about five months where or maybe not even five months, felt much faster than that, where we were going back and forth um, with the editor. Uh, and so some of those edits are quite big, things like your structural edit and even your copy edit. Um, they're quite um, time-consuming. And so it was really between those edits that I would then start thinking about book two and start working on book two. So um, it was it's hard to sort of put it in to say, oh, it took me two months or three months because it was, it was very disjointed with working on the first book. Um, and Within that time, um, I also had my third baby. So she was born in March of that year. And so the edits for The Whispering were still, I'm still doing them in the hospital, with my newborn. <laughs> and then I didn't send them off, I think, to the publisher until she was about four weeks old. The final, the final edits were done and the book went to print. And then I got to really sort of focus on, on uh, the second book. And I think we sent it off maybe sort of May or so, maybe two months before The Whispering came out is when we sent them the Drowning Girl pitch. Um, off to have a collars. And I was working with my um, agent a lot at the time. So going back and forth with him, like I pitched him the idea first. He went through it, told me he really loved it, but there were a few areas that maybe needed tweaking and some work. And so then I would work on it some more and send it back. And I went back and forth with him uh, a number of times. But it was probably maybe like a three-month period or so, but it was a very disjointed, broken three-month period with, with having bubs and wrapping up the edits for the first book. Wow. Okay, and in the middle of all that, you obviously, you know, in the middle of Newport, you, the, the whispering comes out and yeah. garners all this attention, which is absolutely fantastic. What were some of the things in your first year as a author, as a published author, um, that um, maybe were a little bit unexpected or that you were, you know, surprised at? Yeah, the, the first things that I recall that really, um, it was such a delightful uh, thing to be surprised by was the very first time I saw on social media, someone posted um, my book. So someone had read it or received an, an advanced copy and was doing like a review or something. Or even, I might have even just been like, oh, look what arrived in the mail um, picture of my book. And just that feeling of seeing it first time out in the world, I think it was maybe even just before it was published. So I hadn't seen it in any shops or anything yet. It was the most delightful and exciting feeling. Uh, and then every time after that, where people would post about, about the book, it was um, always so thrilling. And even now, when I, when I see people posting about Drowning Girls, I'm still like, oh, but that very first time that I saw The Whispering um, posted online was particularly exciting. Uh, so that's definitely one thing that will always stay with me. It's positive. And there's a few other things that, that sort of have cropped up over the year that I'm like, oh, that's sort of how it all works. So, or sort of. 
I need to sort of be aware of and stay on top of. And one of the big ones is it's really hard to not compare yourself to other authors. So obviously oh. social media is huge and it's great and it's wonderful and everyone's very supportive. But um, I think you can almost do like a bit of uh, too much time on social media where all you're looking at are other authors' achievements. And it can really, sometimes you, you find yourself going, oh, hang on, maybe I'm, I'm not doing that well and wasn't shortlisted for that or I wasn't invited to that festival or I didn't sell in that country. And you find yourself sort of almost doubting yourself and doubting your own success. And I think really important in those instances to put your phone away, uh, but also just I'd sort of take a step back and be like, hang on, what would Veronica of, you know, two years ago have thought of Veronica now? And she would be so impressed. And, you know, this is what, like, what she would have called success. And so I think managing those expectations for um, sort of how you define your success and um, making sure that you're not sort of setting the bar too high or that you're, you know, I, I guess being realistic with what you're seeing on, on social media and not always taking it to heart too much or uh, putting too much into it. So that's definitely one of the the other learning curves that I've come up with, I've sort of discovered along the way. Uh, but apart from, apart from looking at uh, what other authors are doing on social media, um, what have you found the perception of you to be from maybe your peers or your family or your friends, do they, how have they reacted to, you know, cause you, you, you were previously a physio, so this is very different. How have they reacted to this career pivot? Oh, it's such a wonderful reaction. Everyone is incredibly excited and uh, supportive. And I find, um, people, even if they're not interested in writing or even if they're not particularly big readers, they find it particularly exciting. They think it's a really um, a really exciting career, career choice. And, and they find it quite uh, fascinating when I tell them I, I used to work in health and now I'm doing writing and they're usually like, oh, you know, what do you write? Do you write, you know, blogs for like a, some sort of health website or something? I'm like, yeah, no, I'm an author. Um, and then they start to assume you're, you're writing uh, nonfiction health books. And uh, so when they find out it's crime fiction, they're usually um, a little bit surprised and then you end up getting sort of interrogated. It's like 20 questions. And so what questions do they want to know? What's the question that everyone always asks, or not the first one, but a lot of people ask, everyone asks, how your sales are going. And I remember the first few times I was asked, I was quite taken aback by it because I had assumed that your book sales would be a little bit like your salary and it would be a bit of a topic to discuss. But no, apparently it's for Open Slather and everyone is allowed to ask you about your book sales. Um, and I'm spoken to numerous authors and everyone agrees. They're like, yes, everyone always asks about book sales. Um, and then the next thing you get asked about is when the movie deal is coming along or when they can watch your book on Netflix. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not how it works. And I have one um, friend who actually asked me if my agent had reached out to Reese Witherspoons and she was being so serious. And when I said, no, no, he hasn't, uh, she's like, oh, we've got to get him on top of that. And I was like, okay. And even know how to head. Like, sure. <laughs> So there's this big expectation that you're going to be an overnight success uh, and that you will be getting movie deals and TV deals and you'll be an instant bestseller. Um, my husband joked often, that, oh, I'm not sure if he's joking, uh, that he's going to retire soon. He'll be able to retire because I'll be this, you know, raking on all money as a, as a well-known author. And so, yeah, there is a, there's an expectation, I think. And sometimes I have to, I sort of try and real, 
um, my friends and family back and I'm like, so walk them. You, know, you walk into like a library or a bookshop and there's all those books there. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, that's how many books, you know, I'm sort of competing against almost. Like there's a huge competition and, you know, they're, especially if they're not avid readers, the people, the authors that they know are the big name authors. And so they assume that you're going to be one of these big name authors when you tell them that you're an author. So, um, yeah, bringing uh, people's, other people's expectations of, of your career is back down is, um, is definitely a, a challenge and it's something that's coming up quite a lot. I think maybe you're, you are downplaying it a little bit or you're, you've got, you're, you're looking at it through, you know, a very specific lens because I know whenever I go to any bookshop, which is a lot, uh, very, very often, you are front and centre. So clearly, oh, oh, absolutely, you, your, your books, books now are front and centre. And obviously, even though The Whispering was the result of the banjo and you, that was one book um, that came out, they obviously realised that it, they were onto a good thing because then they gave you a two-book deal after that. So that means you're going to have three novels out before long. So now that The Drowning Girls is out, have you finished writing the next one? No, Valerie, I wish I could say yes. Oh, my gosh, I wish I could say yes. No, I haven't. I'm about halfway through my first draft. Um, so I am every day enthusiastically plotting away at it and plotting away at it. And uh, fortunately for me, I am a, a plotter, which we talked about last year when, when we had our chat about how I, I love like a good, solid plot plan. And um so I know where I'm heading with the book and because I had to, I have to sort of pinch it to HarperCollins, but you do need to let them know what you're doing um, and they need to give you sort of like the tick of approval. So I had gone through quite a rigorous sort of synopsis um, and put that together before I had started out in this first draft. So um, I haven't finished it. I really wanted to have finished it uh, by the time The Drowning Girl came out. But unfortunately, life got in the way and it just yeah, didn't uh, pan out that way. But um, I'm due to hand it into the publisher at the tail end of the year. So, so with books two and three, with books two and three, um, now you were able to approach them with the benefit of having done book one and the hindsight mm -hmm. of having gone through that process. Did it, anything change in the way you approached the way you wrote it, the way you, you know, plotted it or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, definitely um, you need to, especially with the second book, which you're essentially selling to them, it, you need to have a pretty solid pitch package. So you need to have a very uh, detailed synopsis um, and you need to have sort of be quite happy to lay out all the cards on the table for that. So you need to have all sort of your red herrings there and your clues and everything, needs, all the suspects, everything needs to be included. Um, and then you also need to have some early sample chapters as well. I think I might have about 10,000 words or so. Um, and I'm someone who really likes to write a first, almost quite sloppy first draft. I just like to get it out as quick as I can. Um, whereas these early chapters that I was, I was essentially trying to sell to, to my publisher, uh, they have to be quite, quite polished. And so I did have to edit and re-edit them over and over again and really make sure that they were up to scratch. And also having gone through the editing process for book one, I sort of knew what would be expected, the quality that would be expected for this second book. So I tried to make that first 10,000 words as great as I could before we sent them off. And so that was all very time consuming. And so to write the first 10,000 words of The Drowning Girls was, it took so much longer than what to write the first 10,000 words of The Whispering would have, would have taken me. 
Um, I would have done that probably in a week and a half, whereas Drowning Girls was probably over those several months um, of just toiling up them and doing things like, you know, just word choices and things that would normally be, be uh, picked up in a copy edit. Um, I was doing before I'd even sold the book and knew that it was actually going to see the light of day. So that was definitely very different. Um, and then I also found that uh, my writing style for the rest of the Drowning Girls changed a little bit as well. And I think that's purely because I've gone through that editing process for book one that I was a bit more aware of maybe some of the areas that I need to work on. And so I think that probably the first draft of my second book was better than the first draft of my first book, just purely because it would have been a bit of a smoother read. And some of those things that were picked up in the first book where my characters say, for example, were always shrugging their shoulders, you know, some of that got weeded out in that first draft of book two, um, as opposed to having to come out in a copy edit. So it was probably a nicer first draft to begin with, a, a more solid first draft. Um, so the editing process wasn't quite quite as um, quite as, as challenging and quite so much of a slap in the face. Now, I one thing I have noticed over the last, um, you know, little while, is that you have really embraced the idea of building your author platform as well, right? You've um, embraced social media. Um, what what has fed into that approach? Well, well, I was always a social media recluse. I was someone who only ever had Facebook and I just lurked uh, pre all this authoring. So now I'm, I have it all basically. Um, but I focus mostly on, on Instagram and then that's And you're really great at focus. it. That's the oh, thing. Good. Yeah. I love hearing that because um, like... I, I feel like I've sort of found my social media groove now, mm. but it did take a while. So if anyone could really be bothered you, and you scroll back through my early Instagram posts, you, you would see they're quite different to what my yes, Instagram Yes, they are. are. It can take a while to sort of find your feet. And how did media? you do that? Like, how did you figure out, okay, I'm comfortable with this, you know? Yeah, I think it was a case of uh, realising what part of my personal life I'm comfortable to share to the public um, and deciding what parts I'm not going to share so that I had sort of like a clear barrier of, okay, well, everything to do with this can go on, can go on there. Um, and I think also it was a case of I really tried to think about what I like to watch on social media, what sort of reels do I like to see on Instagram or, or on TikTok? So I tend to like things that are quite funny, um, or I also like things that are sort of writing related to do with like the craft of writing or maybe another author's process. And so they're sort of the things I tried to focus um, mostly on. And I thought, you know, me posting pictures of my keyboard with my cup of tea maybe isn't as exciting for people and might not help me sort of grow my brand or or um, build sort of an audience and, and hopefully a readership. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, my, my sort of earlier stuff on Instagram is quite different to what I'm currently doing. But um, I'm chuffed to hear you say that because I felt so awkward for so long. And You mean doing it? While. Doing it, absolutely, yes. Yeah, and posting it and having part of me, sort of a video of me on, on the internet for everyone to see, I felt incredibly uncomfortable. But now I'm very used to it. I feel like I've sort of found my group and have settled into so it. So what was the thing that made you comfortable with it because I know a lot of people are listening to this who would think oh yeah I'd feel really uncomfortable so what was the thing that turned it well I wonder if it was um doing them doing like repeatedly doing them just doing quite a few and after a while you become a bit some almost doing into it but if it also was perhaps that making those firm decisions as to what I'm going to show and what I'm not going to show 
on social media. And so I was like, well, I don't need to be uncomfortable with what I am showing because I know that this is a side of me that I'm happy for everyone to be aware, aware of. Um, and then, so I think the other thing is maybe trying not to overthink it too much. I've found that, um, particularly my reels that I do, uh, I often don't have a lot of time to shoot them because I do have three little kids <laughs> and, um, they're often at home with me. There's the youngest one isn't in daycare yet. So there's always someone here. And I think it is, I'm like, okay, I've got this maybe like three minutes to do this quick reel before I know someone's going to come running into the room who I don't want here. And so I don't have time to sort of watch it, watch the reels back and be like, oh no, that's not good. I'll do that again from a different angle or my hair's not sitting right. I'll straighten that and record it again. And so I think because I'm not maybe faffing over the videos too much, um, I'm just recording them generally often once um, or maybe twice, but I'm not recording them 15 times and then finding the best, the best one and, and not sort of. Um, yeah, sort of nitpicking at the videos too much before I post them. So I wonder if that actually helps. I wonder if I'd spent an hour on each video and really sort of worried about them, if, if I would probably still feel quite conscious about them. So that's so what too. I think that, I mean, I think let's talk about the fact that you've got three, three children, um, very young ones. Um, cause a lot of aspiring authors go, oh yeah, I've got little kids, so I really just don't have the time. So Practically speaking, where do you fit it in? How do yeah, you fit yeah. it? It's just snatched moments or do you have set times or in agreement that the kids get locked in a room for a particular period or, or what? <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? I'd probably have child services like knocking on my front door after not too long after the neighbour reported the screening from the bedroom window. Um, no, so I don't, my designated time, unfortunately, is pretty much in the evenings. So once our kids go to bed from about 8 p.m. onwards is when I get to write. And I do get to do a little bit of writing as well during the day when my youngest one naps. And uh, my eldest is now in grade prep and my um, middle child is in kindy. She's in part-time kindy, so she goes to them two, three days a week. So on the days that she's at kindy, uh, and my little one will have sort of a nap from, uh, usually it's an hour and a half, two hours, so I'll write in most of that time. Um, but sometimes it's really short today. She only nap about 15 minutes. So that just means that tonight I have to do more. Uh, so it is hard, uh, to be honest, it's very hard. And I've been doing it this way now for ever since I started writing. Uh, and uh, it will change in the near future. I don't think that's sort of a, I think you can do it for a little while, but I don't think it's sustainable long-term because I just feel like I'm just on the cusp of needing a bit more me time and needing a little bit of a break. But certainly for the, to write The Whispering and The Drowning Girls, that, that's definitely how they were done. And that's also how this third book is getting done. I hope that um, when I write in book four, that I can tell you that I've got a little one in daycare and I have like, you know, two or three whole days a week to myself to write. So we'll see. But really it is just, it was about me uh, making the time. So particularly with that first book, when I knew I wanted to write it and I, I felt so passionate about getting that first draft done. Uh, that I was like, no one else is going to find, you know, I'm not going to find time. No one else is going to make the time for me. I just have to sort of carve out that time myself. And when I, I was working part-time and had young kids, I was like, the only time is not time. And I just really chose not to watch Netflix and to just yeah. write. So speaking of carving out the time, because you not only carved out the time to write, you carved out time to do lots of courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, yes. like so many. So what was the thing that drove the decision to want to do courses, you know, at that time, back, back before you were published? Yeah, I think it was the recognition that I wasn't at a standard that I wanted to be. 
So when I first started writing, I was just, I was writing like great gusto and huge passion and I loved it so much and I was working it every night. And then um, after doing that for a few months, I went back and read what I had written. I was sort of writing a few chapters of this story that was in my head and uh, I thought it was going to be great. I really did. And I think that's because I loved the feeling that I assumed that was going to resonate onto the page and that the story would also be great. But it was appalling. It was so bad. Um, I should have put the laptop in the bin immediately. And um, I tried not to be discouraged. I wasn't discouraged, actually. Um, quite the opposite. I held on to the memory that I had loved writing so much. And so I decided then that, that I needed to learn how to write. So I started off with things just like uh, reading author blogs and looking up things on YouTube and just Googling things and borrowing books from the library. And then that wasn't quite enough. I did know that I wanted to, I wanted to write a novel and I wanted to hopefully one day get published. And so then I, I dove into the world of uh, online courses and I stumbled down the rabbit hole of the AWC. And I think I did like eight courses in like two years. I was like a course junkie. Um, yes. I feel like I did them all. Like I just did so many. I started with one, just going, I'll just do one, just to dip my toe in the water. And then that one finished and I was like, right, so what now? That's right. So you did creative writing with stage one, you did novel writing essentials, you did, you know, anatomy of a crime, how to write about murder, but you also did some of those really specific craft ones, like cut, shape, polish, like how to, you know, yes. really edit yep. your own um, novel uh, and also grammar and punctuation for fiction. Oh, yeah. But so, so yep. I mean, you obviously absorbed uh, a lot of information and, you know, more power to you. That's absolutely fantastic. So let's talk though about, you just made reference to when book four comes along and you were saying that one of the conversations that you had with uh, your agent, Benjamin, was about longevity in an author career. What's the grand master plan? Oh, that's a great question. I think for me, my overall goal, what I would love would be to be able to give up my day job as, as a physio, not as a mum, I'll keep going. Um, <laughs> and just be able to just write books and be able to focus my time on that and to have a few days a week where, you know, kids are at school and, and daycare and kindy where I can just write. And that's, that's sort of my job. And to be able to make enough of a living off it that I, that I call it my career and that I can help support and contribute to the, the family income. Uh, and so I think it means for me, I, I'm sort of trying to be a bit of a realist about it in that I feel that I'll need a bit of a back catalogue of books so that when someone picks up one of the books and they go, oh, I really like like this. I love this. I'm, I'm going to see what else she's written. And they can see that you've got, oh, five, six, seven, eight, ten books. Um, and then they go back and, and hopefully purchase them all. So um, I think for me, it means publishing a number of books in a, a short-ish time, I guess. Um, at the moment, I've been on a book a, I've been on a book a year contract, and yeah, I, I'm quite happy to sort of stretch that out to maybe a year and a half, just to take the pressure off a little bit. Uh, but I don't sort of want to. I, I think I need to. I can't be one of these authors that's publishing a book every four or five years because I think for my um, sort of career plan, that that just won't work. And what about the um, idea of um, sticking in your genre, or are you keen to explore other things in the future? Yeah, I know. I love my genre. I can't see me. I can't see myself um, moving away from crime. Having said that, there are lots of different, obviously, subgenres of crime, and there are like I do enjoy reading a lot of them. So I really enjoy a fast-paced action thriller. So if you think of like Gabe Bergmoser or something like that, that's or Adrian McIntyre, they're they're much speedier and very uh, people almost plot-driven novels. So I quite enjoy that style. But then I also enjoy like a cozy mystery as well and. I've written some 
short stories that were said in retirement villages and there was a murder, um, you know, that was committed by an octogenarian. So I do enjoy a lot of different crime stuff, but I can't see myself stepping away from crime. And what's it you know. about crime that is so attractive to you? Oh, it's attractive to a lot of people, isn't it? Well, like, yes. crime's sort of, yeah, it's sort of having a day in the sun. Um, you know, I think it's got to do with the fact I read for entertainment, but I also read for escapism. And I think it's really nice to be able to explore a whole other world that's, you know, it should be right out by your doorstep. I mean, there. And but it's not necessarily a world that you're involved in. And so being able to do that from the comfort of your own home, in your pajamas, in bed at night, and book is really delightful. There's something quite um, I don't know, almost maybe like perverse about it, seeing how the other, you know, how the other world operates. Um, and so I think that sort of little, you know, we're just intrigued by it and we want to be able to explore it, but from from that sort of comfortable, comfortable spot. Yeah, absolutely love it. So what um what was before we wrap up, what was the most rewarding thing and the most challenging thing about writing The Drowning Girls? Definitely the most challenging thing was finding the uh headspace to write it. So with three little kids and particularly a newborn, um, I was tired when I wrote it. Um, I wasn't sleeping well and I found that uh, my head was, you know, often with the kids or with the house and I would sit down at my laptop to write and I'd have to try and switch all that off and focus just just on the book and that was quite hard and um it was yeah it was hard to do that shift and then I I think probably likewise the rewarding thing is probably always it's a bit of a strange juxtaposition but I think the you know when you have any more baby you don't often get any time to yourself at all and you know it's very understandable and I got that time to myself because I had to I had a deadline and the time was done at my laptop and writing and carving out this whole world that had no babies in it and not any young children in the story and so that was yeah that was really nice so I think you, you sort of that you know having a little bit of time to yourself in that way um also I have to say when I finally held the the first sort of copy of The Drowning Girls it was it was a book when I wrote it at times I was almost like this book will never get done I'm so tired how it finished and to actually be able to hold it when it was when it was coming out and they had printed it and sent me a copy was just glorious because there had been sort of 12 months earlier a moment in my my life where I'm sure I was probably curled up in the beetle position in the corner of my office crying thinking that the book would never get finished um and so that was very that was just an absolute uh delight holding it well clearly it got finished and it's getting so many accolades everybody get yourself a copy of the drowning girls by veronica lando i mean she's just such a gem and such a fantastic author thank you so much for your time today veronica oh thank you valerie it's always a pleasure I loved talking to Veronica and catching up with her to see how she's been going in her first year as an author. And I hope you um, got some insights from Veronica as well. Now, before I leave you, I have this fun fact for you. So everywhere you turn these days, you run into another article about AI, artificial intelligence. And if you need further proof that it's being used for everything, well, researchers have used AI to come up with the ultimate swear word yep according to ai the best swear word the best expletive ever is burr that's b-e-r 
burr. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be replacing some of my favourite swear words anytime soon. And I don't know what Burr Carroll, the wonderful author, of course, is going to think of that either. Anyway, so a mathematician named Sophie McLean wrote a code to create the world's best swear word based on previous inputs. And the code said that the best swear word would most likely start with a B and end in ER. I don't know. I think there are better options than simply burr. But anyway, if you can think of any great made-up swear words that start in B and end in ER, let me know. Of course, this was an article that came out in The the Guardian. But of course, also, if you've written a sci-fi world or some kind of fantasy story where you can make up your own swear words because if that's the world building that you've done then hey maybe burr really is an option and a convincing one at that all right that brings us to the end of this week's episode thank you so much for joining me again i've got some exciting interviews coming up which i hope that you are going to get a lot out of but you know more about that soon. Uh, do feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O. And um, I'm over at ValerieKoo.com, the website. But of course, please do join us in the Facebook listener community. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.